0: the uh, the announcements. First of all, we're having the directory pictures being taken, so make sure you look your Sunday best on Sunday for your pictures for the next couple of weeks so that uh, they can get those done. And uh, Good News Club, if anybody wants to help out with them, that's still going well. How would it go today? Great job. Great. And then October the 18th for the church picnic, there are sign-up sheets in the uh, fellowship hall, uh, for food and uh, also, if you're coming, it's always good to know how many people are planning to come. Mike Makovsky on October 19th, and then in November, we're going to move communion up one week and have communion on Sunday, November the 2nd, because I will be leaving with the, with our group for Israel on the actually on the on the third, so that way we will be. Um, Uh, be covered for that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in fellowship. Fellowship is not a static thing. Fellowship is an active concept of enjoying a relationship. We often use terms like in fellowship that are not inaccurate, but they are not the most accurate because it's not, it conveys sort of a static thing. It's not static. You don't have a static relationship with people. It's a dynamic thing, and that's what fellowship is with God. It's rapport, but the Bible uses terms like abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit. These are all terms that indicate this ongoing relationship. So when we sin, that rapport is broken and has to be uh, taken care of through confession, And then we're we're restored to fellowship where that ongoing rapport with God uh, can continue. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening in prayer, that during prayer meeting, we were able to surface many different uh, situations and issues that face us as a church, face individuals in the congregation, and also face our nation. Father, we can continue to pray for our nation, pray for the world. We've got this Ebola outbreak, and now someone in Dallas has uh, Ebola, and Father, we just pray that uh, you will give us, as believers, the right mental attitude and focus as we look at the challenges of life, that we can respond to them not out of fear and worry and anxiety, but out of a position of confidence and faith and trusting you that no matter how chaotic the world is, we know that you are still in control. Father, we pray for the missionaries his church supports. Pray for Brett Nasworth and his team that's in Africa right now. We pray for um, Dan Hill, who will be leaving to go to Zambia or in the next few days pray for him pray for Jim Myers and Brett Nasworth as well and Jeff Phipps as they get ready for a trip to Brazil coming up in October. Father we continue to pray for us that we might be faithful in your word and faithful in our understanding of it and we pray this in Christ's name amen. In our study of God's plan for the ages, we come into what is usually the most uh, uh, interesting dispensation for a lot of people because we like to know what, what is going to happen in the future. And so we started studying about the tribulation, otherwise known as the time of Jacob's, Jacob's uh, wrath, or as we see from this chart, Daniel's 70th week. This chart, as we've studied in the last few weeks in Daniel's remarkable prophecy, uh, outlines the amount of time from a from a decree in, in the ancient world to the end of God's plan for Israel before the kingdom is established, and that's broken down as the chart shows between an initial period of sixty-nine periods of seven are. 483, actually 483 years from 444 B.C. to 33 A.D. when Christ was crucified. Then the prophecy says Messiah is cut off. Then there's this intervening gap between the cutting off of Messiah and the coming prince. The rapture, I mean the whole church age is in that parenthesis. The rapture of the church ends the church age. There's some sort of gap or transition between the end of the church age and the signing of a peace treaty, a covenant between Israel and the uh, prince who is to come, that kicks off the Daniel's 70th week. It's divided into two periods, as the chart shows, and a period of uh, a half a week or three and a half years, and the second half of a week or three and a half years. And the event that occurs in the midpoint of the tribulation is called the abomination of, of desolation. As indicated by Daniel 9, it's repeated by the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, in Matthew, uh, emphasizing that the Antichrist will come and he will desecrate the temple. So as we're going through this period of the tribulation, which is a lot of debate over, is this a dispensation or not? It's not part of the church age because The baptism of the Holy Spirit is no longer operational. That unique, these unique ministries of the baptism and the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit cease at the rapture. That's what makes the church distinctive in Acts chapter 2, is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the baptism by the Holy Spirit and now, but but not all dispensationalists will say that. There are a few that will take some different views. If you've listened to Doctor Arnold Fruchtenbaum, you'll know that he doesn't agree with about 98 percent of dispensationalists who will identify the restrainer in Second Thessalonians chapter two as the Holy Spirit. And he believes there's still a Holy Spirit there. I think the problem with that view is that it breaks down the distinction between Israel and the church. This is a return back to an emphasis on Israel. There are others besides Arnold that take that view. I'm not just picking on Arnold, but that's, I see that as a major problem with that, with that view. What I want to do starting tonight and probably for the next couple of lessons is sort of go through the personalities. We're looking at the program. Who are the key people in the tribulation period? You can't know what's going on on the field, as it were, if you don't know who the players are. So we have to look at the program, and we have to look at the basic framework of action that takes place during the tribulation period. The tribulation, as I said, is divided into those two periods. It begins after the rapture of the church, and in Revelation chapter 6... We go into the six seal judgments. I believe they take place during the first 21 months or so, plus or minus a few months. doesn't specifically say. And we have these uh, initial th- seal judgments on the four horses of the apocalypse, uh, conquest, open war, famine, and death, followed by the martyrdom of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Christians. They are Christians because they believe in Christ who has completed the work for salvation on the cross, but they're not church-age Christians. The Bible refers to them as saints. They are tribulation saints, and many of them will, will be in heaven as pictured in Revelation chapter 7. The sixth seal indicates the wrath of the Lamb, as I pointed out. Now, that just covers the first half of, of the first half of the tribulation. So you've got 36 months. It's probably not going to be divided in 18 and 18 months, but it's going to be something like that. And then that's going to be followed by the the seventh seal, which when it is opened, it reveals seven trumpet judgments. And those seven trumpet judgments come also in the first half of the tribulation period before the abomination of desolation. We worked through this quite a bit when I went through the Revelation series. So here are the trumpet judgments, and the trumpet judgments occur during the second uh, 21 months or so of the three and a half years of the tribulation period. And so we have uh, hail fire, the burning mountain, uh, the waters are turned bitter, Uh, the sun, moon, and stars lose uh, their brightness. There's this in the uh, fifth Uh, trumpet judgment, this demonic horde is released from the abyss and um, and they plague the people. Then there's a demonic army released in the sixth trumpet judgment. And then the seventh uh, trumpet judgment announces another series of judgments called the bowl judgments. And they take place In the second half, that's what this chart describes. The seven seals and the seven trumpets all occur in the first half of the tribulation period, and then the seven bowl judgments occur in the last three and a half years. In the outworking of Revelation, there's different personages that are focused on. In Revelation chapter 11, you have the two witnesses. Revelation chapter 12, you have the first beast and the second beast, Revelation chapter 13, you have the, uh, the woman who rides the beast. You have the woman who f- gives birth and flees into the wilderness. These are all the key people who were represented in the tribulation period. It's sort of like there's a pause in the action. You go through the seal judgments and the tr- trumpet judgments, and they're chronological. Then there's sort of a pause in the narrative, in the forward flow of the narrative, and then we look at who these key players are, and then the action takes up again. So we saw talked about the beginning and the length of the tribulation as a seven-year period. And tonight I want to look at the first person that is most significant in the tribulation period, and that's the person who's known as the Antichrist. Only one time in Scripture is that phrase used, but the same is true for many of the other titles. The Antichrist is the stuff... Of of the midnight globe, and the uh, various other tabloids that you pick up at the at the um, grocery store while you're waiting in line, the National Enquirer and other things. There are always these articles that pop up about the the birth of the Antichrist somewhere and who is the Antichrist. And so there's throughout history, there have always been these interesting depictions of who the Antichrist is. So I thought I'd amuse you a little bit with this little collage. And here we have an ancient picture of the Antichrist being influenced by Satan. And then we have um, the Muslim imam, that's Maktar Al. What's his last name? Starts with an S. It just slipped my mind. Anyway, notice how they've come along very creatively to show a 6 here. And then around his mouth is six here. And then around his whole face is six here. There's 666. Oh, he's got to be the Antichrist. And then down below, of course, here you have Obama. But lest anybody think that we're just against Democrats, over here we have Pat Robertson with 666 on his forehead. And, of course, he's a Christian... Uh, uh, pastor and then uh, and and over here we have the mark of the beast as a barcode on people 's foreheads there 's just lots of speculation uh, people want uh, to have try to figure out who the Antichrist is, but the problem is the antichrist isn 't going to be revealed as the Antichrist until after the church is raptured the What really shows that he 's the Antichrist is that he's the one who signs that treaty with Israel. So there may be a lot of people who look like the Antichrist. And there may be times in history when you say, ah, so-and-so looks like he could be the Antichrist. Well, you have to remember that, that, the, that, that Satan has no idea when the rapture is going to occur. He has no clue... He knows no more about the timing of the rapture than you or I do. And so in every generation, in every decade, he has to have somebody in place that if the rapture occurs, that person can be the Antichrist. So, of course, it stands to reason that in any generation there's going to be somebody that's going to look and act uh, in terms of the methodology of the Antichrist. Now, we start this, I don't want you to spend too much time in Revelation chapter 6, so you can just open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 we'll start start there primarily but I want us to see how the Antichrist is first introduced in Revelation chapter 6 this is in regard to the um, the Lamb I, that, that um, I've Got an animation there that I didn't take out. So the verse in Revelation 6 1, John says, I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with the voice of thunder, come and see. So he's going to have uh, this revelation of these first seal judgments. And so he looks and beholds a white horse, and he who sat on the white horse had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, this is the Antichrist. I pointed out last time, I believe, that the term Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. Anti, often in English, means against. But in Greek, it means instead of, a substitute for. And so this is someone who's coming as a messianic figure, and he is going to bring world peace or depending on how you want to pronounce it, world peas. And so this is the first seal conquest. And in summary, we see he's described as a rider with a bow. The bow indicates armament. It indicates warfare. Now, is this to be taken literally? Well, it all depends on who you're reading. If you read Hal Lindsey, the bow is just what the writer John would, would describe a weapon as from his perspective in the first century. If you read others, they would say that, no, there, and I'm in this camp, that there's going to be such a disaster that occurs in some of these judgments, maybe not at the very beginning, but there's going to be such a disaster that modern technology is going to be rendered useless and people will be thrown back to very primitive uh, weaponry and, and primitive fighting. When you look especially at the sixth seal judgment, where there's this enormous asteroid shower that hits the Earth, I believe something like that will just wipe out the electrical grid and everybody's going to be thrown back to a more primitive society. Of course, if this Ebola epidemic uh, takes hold between uh, now and then, uh, you could see half the world's population wiped out. We think about instances in history such as the Black Death that occurred several times during the Middle Ages in Europe and wiped out over a quarter of the population in in Europe almost a third of the population in in some areas and we could see something like that you think about the 1918 flu epidemic and there were uh, several i think 18 million people killed worldwide in that flu epidemic that swept the world in about a year and a half uh, and that was less than 100 years ago. So this is a kind of thing that can happen in history and decimate the earth's population, technology, and the economy, and everything else that goes with it. He wears a victor's wreath, which indicates that he's already won combat. And and what we see, we'll go to this passage later on in Daniel 7, is that he unites seven nations and then he will force another three to join him by conquest. So that would be indicated by his wearing the victor's wreath, goes out conquering, and to conquer the first uh, rider of the white horse is a personification of the Antichrist's military conquests in unifying the revived Roman Empire during the Tribulation period. Now we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and just sort of summarize what's going on there. But I thought maybe I would read through it first and then we could hit the somewhat of the summary. Uh, Paul is answering questions related to the future from the um, from the uh, the saints in Thessalonica. I'm going to do this real quick so I don't have to strain my uh, neck to come over here. Wait a minute. I need to uh, what? open that in a floating window. There we go. Okay. Now he says, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, what does the gathering together to him refer Obviously to the rapture. We've seen that established in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So now he's writing them in this second letter, and so he assumes they understand that our gathering together to him uh, is the uh, takes place at, at the rapture. He says, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letters if from us as though the day of Christ had come. That's a reference to the day of of the rapture, the timing of the rapture. He says, "...let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first." Now that's an important term to look at in the Greek. It's apostasia. And for many people, apostasia, because its cognate is apostasy, indicates falling away in terms of moving into false doctrine." But the root of that word is used many times in the ancient world to describe someone's departure, the departure of a ship from a harbor, the departure of someone on a long trip. And there are many of us who believe that the best translation of that term is unless the departure comes first, meaning the rapture, and the the man of sin is revealed. So there's our order. The rapture comes first, and then the man of sin is revealed, called the son of perdition. That's one of the uh, two of the Antichrist titles right there in that verse, man of sin and son of perdition. Then his actions are described in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So he seeks to be worshipped as God so that he sits as God in the temple of God. He will put an, uh, uh, an image of himself. First, he will sit in the temple in Jerusalem, the uh, apostate uh, third temple, which is the tribulation temple. He will sit there, take a seat in the middle of the throne. He causes, as we read in Daniel 9, he will cause the offerings to cease, and he will sit in the temple in the Holy of Holies to be worshipped as God. Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, or who is restraining. That's the restrainer I mentioned earlier. A lot of discussion as to who the restrainer is from this passage. I believe it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit restrains evil during this age. A lot of people wish to accomplish a lot of horrible and evil things, but they're kept from doing so because of God's plan and the restraint of God, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit restrains when the Holy Spirit's removed, then the Antichrist is revealed in his own time. Paul goes on to say, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's the rapture of the church when the Holy Spirit is is removed in terms of his church age ministries. Verse 8, and then the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, that's our third title we've seen for him, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So what we see here, basically, is back in verse 3, his exaltation of himself in the temple of God takes place in the middle of the tribulation, and then uh, there's a reference back to his... His, uh, the, the rapture, when he who now restrains is taken out of the way, and the revelation of the lawless one in verse 8. And then verse 8 jumps from the revelation of the lawless one to what, ha- what his end is as the Lord destroys him at the end of the tribulation. Verse 9 says, "...the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders." And so he's going to perform miracles. People will be healed. Things will take place that are miraculous because he's empowered by Satan. That doesn't validate him or his message because as we've seen in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18... What validates validates a prophet is the truth of his message, not any apparent miracles. So just because somebody does something that appears to be miraculous doesn't mean they're from God. It just means they can be a clever counterfeit. Listen to what they say. Listen to what they teach. That's the real issue. And then we see that verse 10, there will be unrighteous deception among those who perish That idea is uh, reiterated, verse 11, God will send strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that all may be condemned. Okay, that gives us an understanding, so I'm going to go back to the slides, and we're going to just uh, sort of page through these basic uh, summary principles. First of all, we see that we are not to be deceived, only truth applied can protect us from deception, that's seen in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 10. Second, the tribulation will not come about until the departure occurs. Until the departure, it is at the departure that, uh, or the rapture, that the church is removed, the Holy Spirit is removed, and it is then at that point that, that the Antichrist is revealed. The third thing we see is that the Holy Spirit is identified as the one who restrains he's removed before the lawless one is revealed it's very clear from this passage that we won't know who he is you may think you know but a lot of people thought they knew some people thought it was Ronald Wilson Reagan because each name in his in his name first middle and last name had 6 letters in it 666 Some people thought it was Mikhail Gorbachev because he had that funky little birthmark on his forehead, the mark of the beast. Uh, There are a lot of different speculations. People thought it was Bismarck. People thought it was Napoleon. People thought it was Hitler. A lot of ideas, but none of them were actually the Antichrist. So point number four, misnumbered on the slide, the man of sin is revealed after the rapture. Not before. We won't have a clue, so quit speculating. Fifth, the son of perdition opposes and exalts himself over God and replaces God. So he is going to be worshipped as God. That's the idea in Antichrist. He is a replacement, a substitute Messiah, substitute deity. He's called the lawless one, which means he rejects the law of God. And there on the seventh point, I'm making the point again, Antichrist means a substitute or pseudo-Messiah. Now, as I pointed out, the age in the tribulation is characterized by deception, which is emphasized several times in uh, Revelation, I mean, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that there will be deception even so much that if if possible, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, the elect will be deceived. Second Thessalonians 2.11 says, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So can anybody pick out the, the fake sheep? There we have our wolf in sheep's clothing. Samuel Andrews, in a book I have started many times and never quite finished written in 1898, called Christianity and Anti-Christianity, the Final Conflict. He covers the whole of history. It's not just the final conflict. This thing, a hundred years ago, they wrote a lot more, and they wrote in a lot more detail than people can handle today. He writes, "...the choice of the Antichrist is not to be the choice of the rulers only or of the popular leaders." the multitude being unwilling. In other words, it's not that something's going to be, he's going to be chosen unwillingly. He's going to be the choice of the masses. He goes on to say, it's not the choice of the multitude being unwilling, silent and passive. It is the act of the peoples, the direct or indirect expression of popular will. We get the leaders we deserve. That's an uncomfortable truth today. Uh, it's the voluntary declaration of Christendom. They will have a pseudo-Christianity. But Christendom is a term just for those nations who affirm to be Christian. What he, he puts it this way. They will say something like, we will not have this man rule over us, not this man, but Barabbas, that's who we want. That's what the Jews said when they were given the choice between Barabbas, who are you going to crucify today, Barabbas or Jesus? And they said, well, we don't want Jesus. We don't want that man to rule over us. We will take Barabbas. That's who we want. We, The world will choose another Barabbas. He goes on to say, We may know here that a democracy looking upon its leader as its representative willingly gives him a power even greater than the largest measure of its political prerogatives. Take a look. A hundred years ago, he's saying that when we elect a president, we give over, we abdicate power, and we let him get away with much more than he should. The sovereign multitude, the people would seize in their leader, not so much the ruler who commands them as the one who is the exponent and executor executor of their will. That people, yield, that people yields to their rulers such a full and unreserved obedience as no despot could ever attain. Democracy headed up, one who can sway its forces, has such elements of aggression and strength as no former government hitherto existed has ever had. So what he's p- making a point here is don't just think that because we live in a democratic country or a democratic republic or a democratic monarchy in England that somehow that's a protection. If people are hostile to Christianity, they will give all of their authority to the Antichrist. He concludes by saying the laws and institutions will no lo- are, are, are no longer reverenced as having sanctions when having gone through continual change after change after change. A hundred years ago, he's predicting exactly what's happened recently. When various institutions are continually changed, they have no root in the traditions or love of the people. When rulers by popular election prove themselves incapable, when no surety or stability of legislation exists and all are uncertain and anxious as to the future, then there arises a general cry for a man. In a general disintegration, it is only about a man that men can rally, not about abstract principles or written constitutions. All cry for one with a brain, inflexible will and a strong arm, Who can serve as a center of unity and bring order out of confusion? So they will willingly give over everything to the Antichrist. So, who is the Antichrist and what is he going to do? Well, first of all, Jesus warned that there would be false messiahs and false prophets as two categories. False messiahs and false prophets. On the end times, we're going to see that's the second person we'll look at is the false prophet. There will be a false messiah, the Antichrist, and a false prophet who we refer to as the false prophet. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So this is going to take place within the tribulation period. And so you have to pick out which one's the bandit, which one doesn't belong. Second point, Antichrist is a term used one time basically in the scriptures, but has become the most common title for the person also known as the first beast in Revelation. So this is the title. Some people make an issue out of this. You'll say, well, we shouldn't call him the Antichrist. Let's call him something else. Well, he's called the first beast, or he's indicated as the first beast, only one place. He's called the prince who is to come in only one place. A lot of the titles that describe the Antichrist are only used in one context. They're not, there's not a title that's used over and over again to describe him. But all of these different titles that are given to him tell us something about his character and define him for us. The passage where the term is used is in 1 John 2.18 and 1 John 2.22. Children, it is the last hour. Now, which last hour is that? The last hour for the church. How long does the last hour of the church last? The church age. John's writing almost 2,000 years ago. And he's saying because Jesus can come at any moment, we're in the last hour. We have to live as if the, the clock is ticking and it's three minutes to midnight and we're almost there. So it's the last hour. There's also a last hour or last days for Israel. We have to make that distinction when we study Scripture. It's the last hour, and just as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. And this indicates that throughout history, there will be numerous Antichrists with the lowercase a who are types of the future Antichrist. They will imitate him in different ways. I think we have had several presidents in recent decades who have... Uh, shown that they will act much like the Antichrist did. They will want to, they want to remake absolutes. They, they want to say they said one thing one day, but they meant the opposite, and you can't trust what they say. They, uh, they treat the Constitution as if it doesn't exist. That's not unique to, to either anybody in the last 20 years either. There were presidents going back a hundred years ago who when when the Constitution was inconvenient, they sought to ignore it. So the term Antichrist here indicates that there are many Antichrists down through the church age, and that shows us that it's the last hour, that we're living in an age that will culminate in the rapture and then the tribulation. He says in verse 22, who is, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the, is the Messiah? We ought to translate that a little more clearly. Who's the liar but the one who denies that Yeshua is the Mashiach? That's the issue. The Antichrist will say Jesus isn't the Mashiach he's going to claim to be the Mashiach. He's going to claim that Jesus is, is, was a false Messiah, that he was a false Messiah. And so he will deny the Father and the Son. At the core of his administration is a religious foundation. And trust me, at the core of every leader's philosophy of life and worldview is a, is a religious position whether it is somebody like Ronald Reagan or somebody like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, there were religious convictions driving him. You cannot have an ethical position on life without it being driven ultimately by a religious position. And this idea that you can divorce what we do from what we believe is, is, is something that, is, that feeds the ignorant masses but the rest of us should not be taken in by it. You cannot separate religious belief systems from what you do. What everybody cho- every piece of legislation reflects a view of what is right and what is wrong, and every system that that holds to absolutes of right or wrong makes determinations of whether something is good or something is bad is built upon an understanding of absolute. Uh, values that come from an absolute being. So just because they claim to be an atheist, don't be taken in from it. They've deified the universe. They've deified matter. They've deified public opinion. They've deified something, even if it's just their own soul. We see that there are a variety of titles that are used in Scripture for the Antichrist. He's called the little horn. In Daniel 7 and 8, this is a depiction, we'll look at Daniel 7 a little later on in this, a great vision that Daniel was given and there's this goat that comes up and there are, he has a, a horn, this little horn depicts the Antichrist. He's also called the insolent king in Daniel 8.23 because at the core of his personality is an anti-authority uh, anti-authoritarianism directed toward God he's called the prince who is to come as we've seen in Daniel 9 26 and 27 in Daniel 9 27 and repeated in Matthew 24 15 he's called the one who makes desolate uh, he makes an abomination that's where the term abomination of desolation comes from he's called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, as well as the son of destruction. Now that phrase, son of destruction, means that he's characterized by destruction. He will seek to destroy any observance of the divine institutions. He will seek to destroy and subvert morality. He will seek to change the times and the seasons as if he and he alone is God. So again, he's called the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. He's called the beast in Revelation eleven seven, and there are a number of other passages there that also support that position. He, uh, Revelation thirteen one, Revelation fourteen nine, Revelation fifteen two, sixteen two, and Revelation thirteen one is the beast who comes out of the sea. The sea pictures all the Gentiles, nations, all the Gentiles, in contrast to the beast who comes out of the land. Revelation 13, 1, 14, 9, 15, 2, 16, 2, 17, 3, and 13, 19, 20, and 20, verse 10. He's called the despicable person in Daniel eleven twenty one, And he's called the strong-willed king in Daniel eleven thirty six. Now, you can look at this list of titles and you can pick out all the major Passages in the in the Scripture, Daniel seven, Daniel eight, Daniel nine, Daniel eleven, all give us information about the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians chapter two, Revelation eleven, Revelation thirteen, uh, as well. He's called the worthless shepherd in contrast to the Messiah, who's the true shepherd in Zechariah eleven sixteen and seventeen. Now, all of these titles give us an idea of of his character of who he is that he's lawless he rejects all absolutes he rejects the law of god that he will produce destruction of historical traditional uh, beliefs and systems and and governments he is despicable from the viewpoint of god he asserts his authority over god so he's called the strong-willed king all of these indicate his character Fourth point is that he rises to power during the transition between the rapture and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. We've seen this several times. I keep emphasizing this because every time I teach this, there's always somebody who comes up and they think, I always thought the rapture ended, I mean, the rapture, when the rapture occurred, that began the tribulation, not biblically. There's a gap there. We don't know how long that will be. Uh, we've seen that, so I'm going to skip the verse. Fifth point, he's the head of a confederation of Western powers. There are other powers, but his is identified with Rome because of the passage that we see in, in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 26. He's the, the prince of the people who is to come will destroy the temple. That's the first temple. So he comes out of the old revived Roman Empire. Yes, that occur- includes part of North Africa. Yes, that includes parts of Syria, Turkey, areas that are under Muslim control. But the focal point is uh, that this comes out of Europe. You're going to have a worldwide cataclysm. And if you interpret all of these passages to relate to to the Middle East and to Arab versus Uh, Israel scenario, then you're ignoring the rest of the whole world. And the picture that we have in scriptures when the Antichrist comes to power and the false prophet establishes the mark of the beast, that no one in the world, not just the Middle East, no one in the world is able, able to buy or sell or engage in commerce or do anything else. It's a worldwide control. So his power base comes out of out of Europe. Uh, This is depicted in the uh, statue that is uh, seen in Daniel, that, uh, that in Daniel's vision, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, which Daniel interpreted, there was this mighty statue, and each part of the statue was made out of different metals. And the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. And so that kingdom passed off the scene during Daniel's own lifetime. In Daniel 2.39, he said, After you there will arise another kingdom. This is a kingdom of silver, not quite as powerful, or indicated by the precious metal, as, as the uh, Babylonian Empire. And this was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the two arms representing those two uh, ethnic groups, the Medes and the Persians. That was followed by a third kingdom of bronze. That third kingdom of bronze was a representative of the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, which broke apart when he died into four parts, and each of those parts went to a different uh, different one of his generals. And then the fourth kingdom Was is said to be as strong as iron. And these were the legs of iron. But there was something different about the area of the ankles and the feet. And that's the next kingdom, which the iron shows that it grows out of the old Roman Empire and would include weaker elements indicated by the clay. So the feet were made up of a mixture of something strong, iron as well as clay, which indicates that feat that final empire, the final world empire of the tribulation doesn't have the strength of any of the preceding empires and indeed it doesn't last very long. So that is the image of Daniels uh, Daniel's vision okay. Here's another way to look at it. I've got several slides here. We've got Babylon. Something is hanging up here, so I'm having a little glitch. I'm trying to get past that slide. Okay. Sixth point, the Antichrist rises to power following the confederation of ten nations. Daniel chapter 7 is another remarkable prophecy. In Daniel chapter 9, all of these different empires are are represented by some sort of valuable metal and that's looking at the kingdom of man down through the ages from man's perspective that man's uh, man's empires are valuable but in daniel chapter 7 the these empires are depicted again but as beasts because from god's perspective man's empires are bestial they ultimately reflect the sin nature and the corruption of man, and they are uh, destructive. So when the Antichrist rises to power, he, uh, Daniel 7 indicates that he will take control over seven, but there's three that resist him, and that he will uh, take them by force, and he will force them into his uh, coalition. So looking at this, we see that there are four great beasts that come up from the sea. Again, the sea usually indicates the Gentiles. The land indicates Israel. So these four beasts come out from the sea. And we're going to see if all of these slides work. Maybe not. I've never had a glitch with this before. Okay. The first is the lion. The lion represented uh, Babylon. The second kingdom is the bear. It's presented in Daniel's vision as a lopsided bear. A lopsided bear because the Persians dominated the Medes. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. That was replaced by the next kingdom, which was Greece. Greece, though, is represented here as a four-headed leopard because Alexander's kingdom was split into four parts when Alexander died. And then there is a fourth kingdom that is represented as this indescribable beast that comes up out of the sea, and this beast has ten horns. So from Daniel's vision, he's depicting this transition from the beast of the Roman Empire into the beast of the revived Roman Empire. Notice he doesn't that the vision doesn't talk about, just excludes the parenthetical period between the fall of the Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire, which is basically the church age. The descriptions given in Daniel seven, seven and eight. have another little glitch here. let's get to, okay. Daniel seven, seven. after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, taking us back to those iron legs of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. Huge iron teeth, it was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now that imagery is picked up, in Revelation 13, those ten horns represent the ten kingdoms of the revived Roman Empire. Daniel says, I was considering the horns. So he's thinking, well, what do those ten horns mean? And there was another horn, a little one, that came up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. That's this, as I said earlier, The Antichrist is going to have to violently subdue three of them. That's the picture of them being plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. He's the epitome of the kingdom of man and human viewpoint. And a mouth speaking pompous words or arrogant words. Verse 19, Daniel says, I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and nails of bronze. Bronze represented the uh, Greek empire. So you see the, he, it, what happens is the kingdom of man, as it moves through history, each successive kingdom includes the strengths and weaknesses of its predecessors. So there's a continuity when you get into Revelation, and it talks about the the kingdom there. Then that, uh, that it depicts this this whole kingdom that has all of these characteristics in it. Uh, the teeth of iron, and nails of bronze, which devoured, broke in pieces, and trampled. The res- uh, let's see, the ten horns were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows then, in daniel seven twenty three he said "The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. so this kingdom dominates the entire earth, not just one segment. This is another reason I have a problem with the so called Muslim Antichrist theory that only the Muslim or Arab dominated part of the old Roman Empire is what comes into play, and it 's all a battle between the Muslim nations." And Israel is that this fourth kingdom devours the whole uh, the whole earth, and I don't believe it can be Muslim because a Muslim empire is not going to allow Israel to reestablish a temple on the Temple Mount. Now, interestingly enough, there, every ten or fifteen years or so, there's someone someone either a scholar in some cases, and in other cases a pseudo scholar, who comes along with a new theory of the actual location of the temple, and it's not on the Temple Mount. But Ezra makes it very clear that they built the second temple on the exact same site of the first temple. And we know that the present site of the temple, Temple Mount, which is surrounded by the restraining wall that Herod the Great put there as he rebuilt the foundation for, the, because it was going to support this monstrous new building that he was going to put up there, is the location of the of the Second Temple and the location of Herod's Temple, and there have been numerous archaeological uh, finds on the Temple Mount that support that that view that the current Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock, the Al Aqsa Mosque are located, that that is the location of the of the historic Temple. The latest theory coming out by uh, Bob Canouki says that it's further down the. Uh, further down the Ophel which is the lower section between the Temple Mount and the o- Old City of David and so this is just just doesn't work you may hear something about this but don't be uh, led astray by it so this is what gets established and uh, the, this ten horn kingdom this is a western European based kingdom as for the ten horns out of this kingdom ten kings arise Another will rise after them. He'll be different from the previous one, subdue three kings, and he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. So he makes war against the tribulation saints and seeks to destroy them. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. So he's going to subvert all traditional law and he's going to try to change the calendar and try to change the clock and everything else. And he will be given this authority for what? A time, a times, that's twice a time, it's a duel in the Hebrew, and a half a time, three and a half years. So that explains the length of his kingdom. So in summary, the Antichrist in Daniel king is given command of the final kingdom in the second stage of the Roman Empire. He's the little horn that arises after the ten horn nation alliance develops. So he's going to be a little late in showing up on the scene, not right away. And he will overthrow three kingdoms and assume control of the alliance, according to Daniel 7.24. He's arrogant, menacing, and terrifying, militarily powerful, victorious, and persecutes believers. In Daniel chapter 8, he's foreshadowed by Antiochus, Epiphanes. It's interesting. I've always heard it pronounced Epiphanes, but recently I've been hearing more and more people pronounce it Epiphanes, which may be the correct pronunciation. We have to pay attention to other people in the world who actually have studied the original languages and understand these things. The character for the uh, of, of uh, Antiochus was that he was brilliant, arrogant, insolent, cunning, deceptive, manipulative, and he won. You don't want to go up against him, sort of like Putin in Russia. The culture uh, of Antiochus' epiphanies was he tried to destroy all divine viewpoint influence. He attacked the truth. He attacked the saints. He desecrated the temple by having a sacrifice, of a pig on the altar in the uh, in the temple, and he uh, also made it pass laws that it was forbidden for Jews to uh, to um, circumcise their boys or to even have a scrap of the Torah in their possession. It was a death penalty if they were caught with just a scrap of the Torah in their position. He controlled the people through taxation, power, and deification. This is the kind of thing that we're going to see from the Antichrist. In Daniel 9, he's described as European. He enters into a peace treaty, a covenant with Israel in Daniel 9:27, and he will desecrate the temple and set himself up as a god. In Daniel 11.36 and following, he's described, first of all, as being arrogant and exalting himself above all deities. Second, he's on the historical scene just prior to the end of wrath. Third, he is empowered by a foreign god, which is Satan, in 11.39. Fourth, at the end, he will be drawn into a military engagement in Israel with uh, with the king of the north and the king of the south. King of the North is probably Turkey. King of the South, probably Egypt, uh, Arabic alliance. Fifth, he will control the economic resources of the Middle East in 1143. And finally, sixth, he will be destroyed by God in 1146. That's just a basic rough outline of, of his career. So we'll stop there, come back next time. And we will look at uh, more on the Antichrist, finish that up with the last few points, and then we will look at other key figures in the tribulation. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study and reflect upon uh, these things. We recognize that evil is always present. It is always around us, that we have been protected in this country by so much of that because uh, this is a culture that has been built upon your word, and we have reaped the blessings of the founders of this nation who were Christians and Bible believers and established uh, through the laws and through the traditions of this country a God-honoring, truth-centered culture. Whether people were actually Christian or not wasn't, uh, isn't the issue, but they were had beliefs that were grounded upon God's Word. And even though this has been taken apart and dismantled over the last 100 to 150 years. Nevertheless, uh, many of those structures have remained, and we still reap those blessings for which we are so very grateful. But, Father, times are coming as we see the darkness uh, encroach upon the world. We see threats of uh, disease and plague. We see threats of war and, and increase of terrorism. And yet we as believers have the only solution, a solution that enables us to live calmly and peacefully and with tranquility in the midst of chaos, for we understand your plan and your purposes, and so we can relax knowing that our mission on the earth is to be ambassadors of the truth in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, an unstable generation, and a generation that ha- that will come to great panic and fear as the times unfold. And we pray that we might be steadfast in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.